This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the continuing epidemic of drug overdose deaths in British Columbia. Take a look at these numbers last year, 2000. 272 illicit drug overdose deaths last year, breaking the all-time record which had been set the previous year. So that is six deaths a day, over six deaths a day. And this is despite the fact that, remember, BC decriminalized drug possession, decriminalized it at the start of the year. What has happened since then? It was supposed to reduce the stigma of using drugs. More people would get help. Instead, we got the overdose death rate going up. What about that guy who tried to set up a cocaine store downtown? Actually set up a cocaine store. The police quickly busted him. But here's the thing. When we take a look at this death rate from illicit drug overdoses, what is the answer? How about safe supply? Safe supply of drugs. Got Eleanor Sturko standing by to discuss. We've talked about this a lot on the show. If a poison drug supply is killing people, why not give people a safe, a so-called safe supply of drugs? Listen to Dr. Mark Tyndall talking about that. My safe society. Have a listen to him. If you can um, interrupt the, the grind that people go through to get their illegal drugs every day, it changes their lives dramatically. And they can work on you know, housing and um, social, other social things and their health, if they don't have to get up every morning and go and search for illegal drugs. Okay. Is that true? Does this make sense? Is safe supply really safe? Let's discuss with my guest, Eleanor Sturko, BC United MLA for South Surrey. Very pleased to welcome Eleanor back to the show. Thank you very much for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Good morning to you, Eleanor. Thank you for doing this. So let's talk about safe supply. It's also been called safer supply. And we're hearing lots of stories that some of these safe supply drugs are ending up on the street anyway, right? And being sold on the street. What are you hearing about that? Well, that that actually is my primary concern. So I've been hearing from a number of doctors, uh, probably close to a dozen doctors right now who um, the majority of them are addiction specialists who are talking about the fact that they don't see right now any overall improvement in the wellness of their clients who are taking hydromorphone. And in fact, uh, a lot of new uh, people with addictions, particularly among young adults and youth who actually started off by using um, hydromorphone that's been diverted to the street. So, you know, I think there's a couple of different conversations. One is whether or not you know, the philosophy of, of publicly supplied addictive drugs, and then the government's responsibility to ensure it knows where those drugs are going. Because on yeah. the one hand, you know, when we there are ways in which this program could be um, 
institute a little bit more cautiously, actually, to make sure that we're reducing the risk of having drugs diverted, which would be things like witnessed consumption, um, more frequency in things like urine screening. Um, but, you know, the bottom line is, is that government, um, whose program this is, whose policies these are, there's a responsibility there to make sure that, that, that we know where these publicly supplied addictive drugs are going. And I think that right. it's somewhat of a mis- it's a misnomer to say that they're a safe supply. Right. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about that hydromorphone that you described. This is this can be prescribed to people who have a, a, a drug addiction, a substance use disorder. So you prescribe people hydromorphone to take what instead of heroin or instead of fentanyl, and it's supposed to be safer. Correct. So. Yeah, they're, well, what's happening is, is that people who are uh, have fentanyl addiction are being prescribed hydromorphone um, to help deal with the cravings that they're feeling and different withdrawal symptoms. But right. for those who are addicted to fentanyl, for many of them, and, and this is even information on Health Canada, I tweeted it out yesterday, that um, individuals using fentanyl do not necessarily find it um, helping them if they're if they're taking hydromorphone. So. The doctors are reporting that many of their clients continue to use the unsafe street drugs, but they're diverting their um, hydromorphone onto the street. So the street name for it's Dillies. Um, you know, I, on Friday, actually, there was a news report. There was some technical issues with Global, so I think it's coming out again today. But, you know, one of the reporters, Paul Johnson, actually was able to obtain prescription um, safe supply dillies on the street still in their safe supply packaging. And, you know, it, it really does sort of go to the point that, you know, doctors are talking, uh, certainly talking to me. And one of the reasons they haven't come out in the media is that they do fear reprisal, both within the medical community and certainly from the health authorities, that they're seeing young people more and more um, taking hydromorphones or taking dillies because it's become somewhat of a party drug. Um, oh. Do you think that safe supply is safe? Yeah. But the reality is, is that hydromorphone is actually a very powerful opioid. It's it can have the same effect if you misuse it as fentanyl. And in fact, if you use it with alcohol or even other products that have fentanyl, it can be deadly. So I think that the the real you know for me the debate and I've you know there's been lots of pushback and there's a lot of people angry that I would bring this up because. They, they, you know, they, they say it's ghoulish for me to ask questions about safe supply, you know, when people are suffering. But here's the thing is that we don't want to have any unintended consequence. And so we want to make sure that we're not doing more harm than we are doing good. Yeah. Government has a responsibility. And if there is diversion and we've proven that there is diversion going on both, you know, with my safe and with publicly supplied addictive drugs, you know, through our health authorities, the government at least should be warning the public that there are risks associated with taking dilaudid. It's not safe. It's not even safer. Um, you know, of course, if, if it is stopping people from using toxic drugs, sure. But doctors have also reported that many people start off with dilaudid and then they actually graduate up to fentanyl because the dilaudid mm. is no longer effective for them um, to give them the, the sort of effects that they want. So, I mean, sure. I think that it's time for the government to take a close look. We're not drug dealers. We have to have um, knowledge of where our drugs are ending up. There's a, there's a responsibility and, in fact, a liability on this government if someone develops a new addiction as a result of diverted drugs or if they are harmed as a result of right. these drugs. So, you know, we, we really need to pay attention to what's going on.
Speaking of Eleanor Sturko, BC United MLA for South Surrey, we're talking about safe supply of, of drugs. Is this an answer to the overdose crisis that we're seeing right now? Hydromorphone is one thing. There's also a push to expand the number and variety of drugs that would be made available in a lab-tested quality control to give to people so they don't die from a fentanyl overdose, Eleanor, as you know. Let me play a clip here for you from lawyer Paul Lewin, who is arguing for, we need, they want the government to supply cocaine, heroin to people that is safe, so-called safe and tested in a lab. Let's listen to him, then I'll get your thoughts. Vancouver is also suffering through a terrible uh, opioid scourge, and it's really, uh, it's opioid poisoning is what's going on. People are dying, um, so it's a huge problem. Safe supply would address that. Yeah, so he says people are dying from this poison drug supply, so give them a safe supply instead. There's a, there's a big push on for this. Your thoughts? Well, I think that we just don't have enough evidence. Uh, you know, what we're doing right now in British Columbia is an essentially uh, a large-scale human experiment because no one has done the type of things that we're doing in our province. You know, I asked uh, the minister, Minister Whiteside, in the budget estimate, so that's where we cross-examine the budget. I said, so, you know, if the point of safe supply, whether it's dilaudid or other substances that they're giving, if the point of it is to separate drug users from a toxic drug supply what kind of testing and and metrics are we doing to measure how many of the people on safe supply have actually stopped using street drugs and the answer was that they don't measure it oh do we uh, yeah so do we actually know and you can see this on hansard for anyone out there saying that i'm you know spinning lies or whatever it's on hansard people you can go into the bc legislative website and see it how do if it's not separating people from the toxic drug supply, then, then, you know, we're not going in the right direction and we need to pivot. I'm all for saving lives. In fact, I left my policing career because of the opioid crisis and my desire to help people. I'm not ghoulish. I really just don't want us to go down a path of all of a sudden seeing a lot of unintended consequences. And, you know, there are other within the spectrum of prescribed um, drugs that people can receive medically supervised alternatives there are a variety of of things that doctors can employ that are evidence-based i just think that we need to have more oversight particularly when it comes to publicly supplied addictive drugs because all of us as taxpayers will end up having a liability if there are injuries or people who acquire new addictions okay eleanor this is a super important topic and I'm, i'm always grateful to you for coming on thank you for today yeah, you betcha, anytime. All right, let's talk about the police crackdown on speeding now. What are your options if you get a speeding ticket? This can cost you a pretty penny for sure. The police can really hammer you with not just fines, but the penalty points on your record as well and other ramifications too. Got Kyla Lee standing by. Have a listen to this report here now from Global News reporter Janet Brown on the police crackdown on speeding underway right now. You'll also hear the public safety minister, Mike Farnworth, here. For the month of May, police will be targeting speeding and other high-risk behaviors. Take your time on the roads. Increase your following distance from the car in front of you. Be patient and always be prepared to stop. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Kyla Lee, lawyer at Acumen Law, and I'm always very grateful for her time. Kyla, thank you very much for coming on today. Well, thanks for having me. 
Okay, so Kyla, the crackdown is underway. Do we see this every year at this time? The police do a speeding crackdown? Yes, police are often doing speeding crackdowns as soon as the weather gets nice, and especially in the month of May, um, because that's when people really ramp up their sort of summer and late spring travel. The May long weekend is a particularly busy time on the roads and a particularly high enforcement time for police looking for speeders. What are the most common ways that police catch speeding drivers? The most common way uh, is using laser or radar enforcement. So they'll usually be hiding somewhere that you won't see them right away, um, often opposite uh, the side of the road that you're traveling on, so you're not looking in their direction. Um, and they, they nab speeders using uh, either a laser or radar device, depending on the police force. Well, okay, that's interesting. What is the difference between a, a radar and a, a, a laser? I thought that was the same thing, no? No, there's a couple significant differences. Um, obviously, the technology that's used to measure the speed is different. Laser is using a beam of light, whereas radar is using um, a, like a signal. Um, and radar actually casts a beam. So it's more susceptible to getting confused between multiple different vehicles. If there's a pack of cars traveling at the same time, it's difficult to discern the speed of an individual vehicle, whereas laser is target-specific. So if police are using a laser, they're actually pointing it at the front license plate of the the car in order to measure the speed of that specific vehicle. Okay, and do both methods consistently stand up in court? Like, is one is one technology considered superior to the other? I mean, I would say that laser is considered superior to the other, but both stand okay. up in court. Both are accepted in court as methods of measuring speed, provided the officer gives evidence that they're trained in the operation of the device, that the device was working correctly within the manufacturer's specifications at the time that they used it, um, and obviously give evidence that it was a device that was capable of measuring the speeds of moving vehicles. Right. So then your, your goose is cooked at that point, right? Like, you're done. They got you. You can't fight back, or can you? Uh, you can fight back. There are ways to challenge the accuracy and the reliability of the officer's speed reading on the device. Um, there's also ways that you can uh, sort of uh, call into question the operation of the device, how the device was used. There's certain checks that have to be performed to make sure that it's functioning correctly. So we've had a lot of success in cross-examining officers on how they performed those checks and what the results of those checks were. Okay, so it sounds to me like you were describing their... I guess what would be known as a speed trap, right? Like, do police, yes. are there places in the lower mainland, say, where police will consistently kind of camp out, you know, and just nail one speeding driver after another, like a really good fishing hole for the police? Like, is that, that's going on, right? Oh, yeah, that happens a lot. Um, you know, there's, I'm sure everybody that's listening can probably name somewhere that they've seen police doing the speed enforcement. You know, we see them on the viaduct, we see them on Marine Drive, we see them um, on the Knight Street Bridge. Um, those are, you know, common, well-known places, places that you definitely also should not speed because there is a big yeah. public safety risk. Of course, yeah, it was slow down. People should just slow down and not, and not speed, but especially in those areas, right? Like, if you know where those areas are i mean if you're you should be smart enough to know you should not should not be speeding through here it, it is surprising to me that people get caught in locations where there is consistent and visible enforcement where the police aren't hiding the fact that they're doing speed enforcement because everybody does know these are no notorious locations Right. Although studies have shown that publicizing the fact that enforcement is going on does actually lead to a decrease in the speeding behavior. People do slow down if there's public notification. 
Yes, is, because yeah. there's a perception that they're going to get caught. So they're cognizant of that and they're monitoring their speed and making sure that they're driving lawfully. Right. And does that happen in BC? Like, are they required to give you a warning? Like, this is, you know, there's traffic enforcement here by radar or laser. No, they're not required to give you any type of warning, and uh, they uh, often they don't. Um, you know, uh, there have been cases where people have argued that this is entrapment. It's not entrapment. They're lawfully entitled to do it without telling you about it. Yeah. yeah. Speaking to Kyla Lee, traffic lawyer, Acumen Law. I, I follow Kyla on TikTok, which I, I encourage you to do if you're on TikTok. And Kyla, one of your recent videos was um, the the worst excuses for speeding that you've heard in court. <laughs> Tell me about some of those, some of the worst excuses that you've heard. Uh, I mean, one of the worst ones uh, that we hear really commonly is, I really had to go to the bathroom. Uh, <laughs> but that does not get any sympathy because there's all sorts of places that you can usually pull over, a gas station, local businesses, um, and relieve yourself. There's no reason that you <laughs> need to actually speed home to use your home toilet. <laughs> Oh, okay, well, if you got to go, you got to go. I mean, so that that doesn't stand up in court, though. That doesn't typically convince a judge or a police officer, right? No, that does not justify speeding. Okay. Another really common one is uh, that I was just going with the flow of traffic. Um, yeah. And, you know, if the flow of traffic is above the speed limit, then you are still breaking the law. Even if everybody else is breaking the law, that doesn't absolve you of any responsibility for your law-breaking conduct. And police aren't required to stop every single driver and issue them a ticket, nor can they in situations where everyone is going over the speed limit. So it's just your unlucky day in those circumstances. Okay, what if you're late for an urgent appointment? What if you have to get to the hospital? What if you have to make uh, the last sailing on the ferry? None of those are justifiable excuses. Nope. Um, there are circumstances where if you are facing a life or death situation where you're, you're, you are in imminent peril, and if you don't speed, you could die, you could be severely injured, then your speeding could be justified. This is known as the defense of necessity. We typically only see this working in situations where people are speeding to avoid a car that's posing a hazard on the roadway and to get away from that vehicle so that they don't get involved in an accident. But that's the only circumstance really where that's been justified. All right, Kyla Lee is my guest, talking traffic violations, speeding tickets, police cracking down right now. Lots of calls. Brian in Abbotsford. Hi, Brian. Go ahead. Hey, how you doing? Good. Uh, yeah, so I uh, actually got a um, uh, ticket one time for running a red light, but it was uh, actually yellow. And uh, so I disputed the ticket and uh, I never actually made it in front of the judge. But before the ticket, well, before your hearing, they quite often talk to you, the police officer. And uh, so we just went over things, and I told them that uh, when it happened, that I felt that I could not stop in a safe and controlled manner. So I proceeded with extreme caution, as is permitted by yellow light. And yeah. uh, he kind of grinned for a second, and uh, he said, you're going to say that, aren't you? And I said, absolutely. And so he just said, uh, well, I'll just submit no evidence. And uh, so... That's how I got away with that one, even though it was technically, it was a late yellow, but, uh, yeah. Okay, so when, okay, so we said, I'm going to submit no evidence. So what happened then? They threw the ticket out? Threw the ticket out, yeah. Threw the ticket out. Okay. All right, Brian, thank you for sharing that. Kyla, what do you think of that story? Um, I, I mean, 
mean, I'm I'm not surprised um, when an officer is confronted with an explanation for um, a, a, that would amount to a defense. They have an obligation as the prosecutor of the ticket to consider whether or not there is sufficient evidence to continue with the prosecution in light of the new information. So the officer sounds like he did the right thing there. Okay, what exactly is the law when it comes to like like an amber light at an intersection when the lights lights about to change red? You got that yellow light. What you you're are, supposed to, you're yeah, required you to stop required unless to stop. you can't stop safely, right? Exactly, unless the stop cannot be made safely in time. So you should always be as you're approaching a yellow light, cognizant of how long it's been yellow and how long you may need to stop, so that you can provide that type of information if you end up getting a ticket. Right, but isn't that kind of almost a judgment call? Like if a police officer sees you and says, "Well, I think you went a tad too late there. You could have stopped," and then you say, "Well, you know, no, I think I couldn't stop safely." I mean, does it become like a bit of a judgment call? It does become a judgment call. And, you know, you know your vehicle best and how long your vehicle takes to stop, what weight might be in the back of your vehicle that might increase your stopping time that the officer can't see or know about. Those things are going to be factors that the court has to take into consideration. Okay, interesting. Dave in Vancouver. Hi, Dave. Go ahead. Hi. I just uh, wanted to know about, as far as a, a cell phone or an electronic device ticket goes, what proof do they is it just the officer's verbal statement or as i see it isn't it the burden of proof on the prosecution to come with evidence or is it just pretty much their statement in most distracted driving cases it is pretty much the word of the officer about what they saw i mean obviously they have to describe their observations in compelling enough detail for the court to believe that it took place um, but the vast majority of traffic ticket cases are just what the officer saw and them describing that in court, and that is acceptable evidence. Okay, so it's not like they need to show, uh, here's a photo of the of the driver with uh, looking at their, touching the phone in their lap or something, right? They just need to, they just need to testify in front of the judge, and that's u- usually good enough for the conviction. That is usually good enough, and unless yeah. you can sort of give some sort of explanation or cross-examine the officer in a way that would call into question their observations, those are relied on mm. consistently by the court. Okay, how often do you? How often can you beat that ticket? <laughs> cell phone tickets are one of the hardest ones to beat because yeah. we all know what a cell phone looks like, and we can all see signs of distracted driving. So it's pretty easy to describe. Right, right. Six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight is the number to call. Six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight star ninety eight ninety eight toll free on your cell. Leo and Burnaby. Hi, Leo. Go ahead. Good morning to you and your guests. Yes, a little while back. Uh, there was uh, about five uh, RCMP cars at the bottom of Royal Oak. Uh, no, sorry, uh, Canada Way, where it inter- intersects Kensington, and there's an overpass over the freeway. And uh, one day, actually, they did it over a series of about three or four days. They had about four or five police cars each day pulling people over that were turning right at the light as opposed to use the two dedicated lanes to turn right. And oh. I said, well... You know, there was nobody, there's no sign at the light that says I can't. They insisted that I had to use those two lanes. I thought, okay, well, there's no point in arguing with them. So I went home, did my research with the Motor Vehicle Act. I even met with uh, a couple of managers of the Department of Highways, and uh, they agreed. There was no sign there. I said, if somebody's not allowed to turn right, then you should put a sign up, which they eventually did. I went down to the courts to fight the ticket, and uh, they had to reverse, uh, I don't know how many of them, probably close wow. to 100, if not more, because what really infuriated me was the uh, uh, the resources that were wasted. Five police cars each day 
for hours on end. And then they had to go down to the court and get rid of them all. And I thought, you know, you think they would have done their homework a little bit better than this. Okay, well, that's a very interesting story, Leo. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, so beating an illegal right turn ticket, Kyla, what do you think of that? Uh, well, I'm uh, impressed at the uh, lengths that you went to uh, to get that ticket uh, beaten, Leo. I'm I'm uh, very proud of you. Um, but you know that that is it does illustrate the importance of investigating your defense. If you think that you are in the right, you know, read the provisions of the Motor Vehicle Act. Talk to people who know the law um, and research the information that you need to prove your case. Because not only can you help yourself, but you also, yeah. like in this case, may end up helping other people too. Leslie in Coquitlam. Hi, Leslie. Go ahead. Uh, hello. I wish the uh, police, be it RCMP or whoever, uh, would be sitting down by the going east and west, uh, sitting down by that big, long stretch where they're doing the construction. The signs are there, 30. I'm doing 30. Sometimes I get honked at, and they're just blowing past me like crazy. Where is, where is this specifically you're talking about? When you're about? coming down Low Heat Highway, going to go into Port Moody, and you oh, yeah. go and you're at the cutoff for Ioko, and you follow the light to go into Port Moody. Okay. Right around the corner from that light, there's a sign, 30, construction, that whole strip there, and they're just blowing past you through the strip, and it's marked, fully marked, 30 at the other end and 30, 30 at this end. Okay, Leslie, thank you for that. Is that typical, Kyla, in a construction zone? They will post a lower speed limit? Yes, and the speeding fines are also higher in a construction zone. So if you do get a speed uh, ticket in a construction zone, you end up paying more money because of the increased risk to the people who are working there. Okay, how much can that run you? Uh, $276. Okay. It sounds like she's describing a situation where there doesn't sound like there's any enforcement there. You'd think police would, would police typically step up enforcement in an area like that? Uh, they do sometimes. If you are concerned about a particular area, you can call the municipality or you can call the police directly and ask them to do enforcement in the area. And oftentimes they will come out and do some enforcement and see if there is a problem. They just need to be alerted to it. Right. And as for, we just have one minute left here, Kyla, but the, you know, the fines are can be can be quite quite high, but then you've also got the penalty points, right? Just in 30 seconds, what happens if you get a penalty point on your record? Uh, if you get penalty points on your record, it can trigger driver penalty point premiums, which means you have to pay an additional fee to ICBC every year around your birthday. Uh, yeah. It can also trigger driving prohibition. So you can lose your license for getting too many points, which is why you definitely don't want to accumulate a lot of points. Kyla, where can people reach you? Uh, they can find me uh, online at kylalee.ca, find me on Twitter at IRP Lawyer, or just call my office. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right, let's talk about the political trends in our province right now, in our country, next door in Alberta. And I find this fascinating to look at where British Columbia is going, where Alberta is going, with an election underway there, where Canada is heading. Take a look at this now. Think about B.C. for a minute here now. You've got an NDP government that's now been in power for nearly six years. This was after the previous Liberal government looked like it was a dynasty. David Eby, the new premier, Still with a, a big, a commanding lead in the polls right now, if you believe these polls. His approval rating significantly higher than the opposition leader, Kevin Falcon, even though they've rebranded. They have a new name. 
Why is that? Why are the NDP hanging on here? Why are the NDP continuing to do well in BC? Look next door in Alberta. Wow, you got what? Halfway through an election campaign here, and the NDP in Alberta also in the lead in one of these recent polls, eight point lead. Even in Calgary, which be a conservative stronghold in the past, NDP looking to do well there in Calgary. Could the NDP take power again next door in Alberta? Why are these parties doing well? Check out this survey now from the Fraser Institute. Four in ten Canadians now prefer socialism. Young Canadians in particular. Is this way the country's leaning right now and younger people are leaning? Leaning toward a socialist-style government and economy? Let's discuss with my guest, Jason Clemens, Executive Vice President of the Fraser Institute. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Jason, thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, this is a really interesting survey you guys have done, and it's gotten a lot of attention here. So let's talk about your findings here. How many Canadians who believe that socialism is the way to go in Canada? What did you find out? Sure. So if we look at all age groups, it was 42 percent preferred or indicated that socialism was the ideal economic system. If we look at just 18 to 24 year olds, it's half, uh, 50 percent. What we clearly see is that the younger you are, the higher your support for, quote unquote, socialism. And that's consistent in not only Canada, we did the survey in four countries, uh, Canada, the United States, Australia, and the United Kingdom. And that's consistent across all four countries. And part of our explanation for that is this is a group of young people who never lived with socialism as a global alternative to what we have now, which is some mixed form of markets. Okay, do you believe that if you take a look at the the difficult economy that we face right now, we've been through so a lot of tough times. Are young Canadians looking more to government, social spending, and social programs as sort of what they would prefer? Yeah, it's a great question. So part of what we did, which is different than all the other surveys we had looked at, is we actually asked respondents to define what they meant by socialism. Yeah. Um, what they what they clearly don't mean is we want the government to own the banks and own industries and own the airlines and, and actually go back to this to the type of socialism we actually tried and that failed. Most people, irrespective of age group, when they say they're supportive of socialism, what they really mean is they want much higher levels of government spending in terms of both government provided programs and also uh, a guaranteed annual income. Now, what's wow. incredibly important, though, is regardless of age group, nobody wants to pay for that. <laughs> um, and so one of the predicaments that the United States ourselves, to a lesser extent Australia, and, and to a lesser extent the United Kingdom are in, is that we're being presented an alternative that cannot sustain itself, where we're essentially expanding government dramatically but we're not concurrently expanding the tax burden. And so we're basically borrowing to spend on programs and income support, income transfers today, when we know down the road we have to raise taxes. And so it it is a concern that, you know, we do have people promoting a system that we know doesn't sustain itself. And 
to be frank, you know, we do have people like Bernie Sanders in the United States, uh, for example, who keep saying, well, this is the Scandinavian model. And part of the project that, that we're working on is actually detailing that, in fact, that is not the Scandinavian model. Their model is actually very different than what is being proposed, where we can get all these new services, income support, but average Canadians or average British Columbians don't have to pay higher taxes. Okay, that's very interesting. Let's listen to a couple of the key political leaders here right now. So let's listen to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau here. Now, here he is responding to complaints of overspending. We've racked up a lot of big deficit budgets here. The The long-term accumulated debt of the country has gone up dramatically. Trudeau asked about this. Are you spending too much money? Is too much red ink here. Pierre Polyev, the conservative leader, been criticizing the government for overspending. Listen to how Trudeau responds here. We're also going to listen to a, a Polyev clip here in a sec, but let's listen to Trudeau first. So here he is defending big government, big spending. Let's listen. People need to understand uh, that this is a time uh, where Canadians need that extra support. We're seeing even with inflation coming down, which is a good thing, which is a response to the measures that we've put forward, Food prices, for example, are still too high. That's why uh, we're bringing in significant supports uh, for Canadians on buying groceries, but the 11 million Canadians who need it the most. These are the kinds of things we move forward to help with affordability. Okay, so the pandemic is over. Inflation is is cooling off a bit, as you heard him say there. We still got to spend big. We've got to help people buy their groceries. Jason Clemens, is this what is this what Canadians are responding to? Is particularly younger Canadians they like hearing that? Well, I, I don't think so. I think what our data would show is, and certainly what we're more concerned with is the permanent spending. So you know, temporary spending where it's one year, and I mean, I don't agree with the prime minister that it's targeted, but that's a different story. Um, it's the permanent new programs, whether it's pharmacare, dental care, the new ten dollar a day daycare that. Essentially, what we're saying is we're bringing in the new programs, but we're not willing to pay for them today. And if you look at the polling data, the polling data collapses for support for those programs when you attach a tax increase. And so essentially what we've got government saying is we can spend more, but we don't have to face higher taxes, which is just not sustainable. I mean, for those of us old enough to have gone through it, the you know the mid 1990s, early 1990s, NDP government, Liberal government, Conservative governments across the country had to make very difficult decisions because we were you know within a stone throw of a full out currency and debt crisis because we had overspent in the 70s, uh, part of the 80s, and we had to get our fiscal house in order. And unfortunately, the Prime Minister. What we really need to talk about is the new permanent programs that the federal government is bringing in that are not paid for. Right. Okay, let's listen to the opposition leader here, and we'll get your thoughts. So here's Pierre Polyev, the federal conservative leader here, talking about socialism specifically and some of the trends we're seeing here. Big government, big spending. He's got a very different message. Let's listen to his take here, then I'll get your thoughts. Pierre Polyev. Countries with smaller governments as a share of GDP tend to have less poverty and better social and economic growth outcomes. Um, And that is true in both the developing world and the developed world. Um, So uh, I I do believe that you can provide a solid social safety net at the same time as having a powerful free market economy that generates the wealth to fund that safety net. 
Okay, so kind of a classic conservative, small C conservative argument there for smaller government, lower taxes, less regulation. Let's let let's unleash the private sector, and the, we can stimulate the economy that way, and we'll have enough money for these generous social programs. I guess that is the message that Polyev is pushing in, in that clip, Jason. What are your thoughts on that? Because I wonder, will Canadians respond to that if he starts talking about cutting government? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think there are two important aspects to the question. The first is uh, economic growth, because if we're not generating income, then it, I mean, it doesn't matter if we're making a private sector argument or a government argument. We just don't have the income to spend on these programs. And the economic growth in the last 10 years has been the lowest since the 1930s. And so it, one of my worries is we should ha- we should be talking about a near full out growth crisis that for a whole set of reasons, the Canadian economy is not growing the way that we would expect, or nor is it growing in a way that's comparable to our other industrialized country um, comparators. I, I think the second question then is, are we talking about targeted assistance for those in need, or are we talking about new general programs that cover most, if not all, of the population? Because the former, those targeted programs, if done well, can be quite limited in terms of their how expensive they are. But when we're bringing in brand new programs that cover most of the population or even all the population, they can be and usually are incredibly expensive. And so unfortunately, particularly at the federal level right now, what we've got is programs that are covering most of the population that are not paid for at a time when economic growth, economic growth, pardon me, is at, a, at least a four-decade low. Again, if you look at per person, we haven't had this low of growth rate ba- uh, going back to the 1930s. Okay, so we take a look at these attitudes. I find this a fascinating survey that you've done on how attitudes are changing toward this and the trends that we're seeing. So we all know there's no free lunch, right? Like, we can expand these government services. Like you said, it's going to be very expensive. We heard the, tr- the, we heard the clip from Trudeau there. We need to keep spending. But at some point, doesn't someone have to pay the piper and jack up taxes? I mean, is that where people start to recoil against tax increases if and when they come? Absolutely. I mean, I just I'll give your listeners just some data. So consider if you ask Canadians if they support a new pharmacare program, the support is almost 80 percent. If you ask them, do you support pharmacare, if it means a two percentage point increase in the GST, it falls to 40%. So pharmacare goes from an overwhelming um, uh, winner for, for a political party, if you're borrowing to pay for it, to a loser if you're paying for it today. And so the, pro- the challenge with that, uh, particularly when we think about uh, the political system making decisions, is the price for these programs will be down the road 10 to 15 years when both economic history and economic data tell us we're going to pay higher interest costs via government and we have to increase taxes. And so this is exactly what happened in the mid to late 1960s all the way through to the early 1990s. And then what did we have? We had a very difficult period of restructuring to get our house in order. And I think, unfortunately, we're in the same situation. We're already seeing pressure on the interest rate side. Economic growth is down, uh, significantly down. And so, to me, we're, we're on that path again that it might be three years, it might be five years. I mean, I certainly try to avoid having a crystal ball. 
But at some point, we will have accumulated so much debt that we become more risky. Our interest rate costs go up, which squeezes the resources that we have available for the programs and services that government provides. And the only answer is to cut significantly and or raise taxes. And that, I, unfortunately, again, that's the path that we're on, that, that somehow Canadians uh, have bought back into this idea that we can provide programs, large-scale expensive programs, but not pay for them. Okay, Jason, we're going to continue to watch this trend very closely here, especially as we get closer to another election in Canada. Thank you very much for coming on today. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Let's talk about young people now and this really interesting trend switching from the smartphone to the dumb phone or the old flip phone. Remember that? The old flip phone when cell phones were first around? This is really interesting. A lot of young people saying, you know what, I'm done with the smartphone. I'm going to switch to a flip phone here. can be cheaper. Battery life is better. Yeah, I mean, you get basic calling and texting functions on it, I guess, but you want not really surfing the web, looking at websites or social media videos. Why are young people doing that? Got Andy Barrar standing by to discuss. Let's first, let's have a listen to the, the viral TikTok on this now. You got college student Sammy Palazzolo, University of Illinois. And a lot of her videos have gone viral here on the switch back to the old school flip phone. Let's have a listen. Why my friends and I only take our flip phones out, we don't take our regular phones out. Because we realize that every single problem that we have on a night out, everything that leads to us crying, everything that leads to us having a bad hookup, everything that leads to us having a bad time, stems from our phone while we're out. One of our friends doesn't get on her phone at all when she's out, and she has a wonderful time every single time. She's always in the present moment. She always finds people, like, finds friends when she's out. Like, it's just so much better of an experience. It eliminates all of the bad things about college and brings all of the good things about a phone, which is, like, connecting with people and taking photos and videos. Like, the photos and videos on this are fire. Okay, so they eliminate the bad things from the smartphone and just keep the flip phone as a communications tool, and that seems to be better. More people going in that direction. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Andy Burrar, tech and digital lifestyle expert, handyandymedia.com, and I'm pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Andy, thanks for coming on today. Oh, my pleasure, Mike. Okay, this is really interesting here now, switching from the smartphone to the dumb phone there. First of all, what are the differences between the, the, you know, the typical smartphone, like an iPhone, and the old school flip phone? Yeah, so these dumb phones, but essentially they're, they're not running iOS, they're not running Android. So you're not going to be able to download traditional apps. There's no Google Play Store or Apple uh, App Store. So right. essentially you have what you kind of mentioned. In the early 2000s, we had cell phones. We did, they weren't smartphones. They were cell phones. So you could text right. and you could maybe take a picture, a really grainy picture on it, um, and you <laughs> can take calls. And that I, I find really interesting that the young people are, are going back to this because we're talking about Gen Z. So they were born in the mid 90s. So about say 1996, when really the internet really kind of went mainstream and people started hearing about the World Wide web is what they called it back then. So they grew up Mike with the internet as part of their life the whole time, but they probably remember these phones because their parents had it. Maybe they had, their parents had the old Nokia ones and they played snake on it. So they're familiar yeah. with this technology 
And they're realizing that with these new smartphones, they, they become slaved to their phone. And a lot of that has to do with the algorithms that the social media sites use to bring them back in. But they're finding all of this freedom now by going with one of these dumb phones where they can still text, they can still call. So you get that peace of mind, but you right. don't, you're not just sitting on your phone all the time when you're with your friends. Yeah, and I find it a really interesting trend, and you heard in that TikTok there that we played that's been viewed millions of times on TikTok, saying like, you know, we keep the best of we keep the best of what the cell phone does for communication, but it just eliminates a lot of the the bad stuff there, especially for younger people going through like you said, slaves to their smartphone, right? Yeah, and it's funny, Mike, because when you probably remember this, when the internet first kind of came out, nobody used their real names. You know, everybody had an alias, and you were kind of unsure about this. But young people, especially Gen Z, they share so much of their lives online that they yeah. can't actually be in the present in in you know with when they're with their friends because they're constantly getting on their phones, they're creating content, then the other person will pick up their phone and like that or comment on that. So they're not present when they're with their friends. And and they really like these phones, the fact that they don't take perfect pictures. They're not touched up pictures. They're they're kind of more realistic. And I, I, I find that fascinating because not only with these phones, these dumb phones that are making a reinsurgence, but also vintage digital cameras are making a reinsurgence with young people because they just love the the fact that they, they have these kind of grainy pictures. It seems way more realistic than the touch up photos you get with an iPhone today. Yeah. And for the flip phone, and I remember I had a flip phone back in the old days and the sort of the, the dawn of this technology. Is a flip phone today cheaper? Is it cheaper to run than a smartphone? Well, it depends on what type of flip phone you're talking about, because Samsung has the Galaxy Flip, and that's a full on Android powered uh, smartphone with the right. flip form factor, right? And they're actually trying to use them with content creators because you could dock it up and then use the front-facing camera and angle it and, you know, basically uh, create content that way. But the, the ones that these Gen Zs are using, because they're primarily in the States, they're using this one from AT&T. It's called the Singular Flex. And this doesn't have Android on it or iOS, of course. And it's just, it's like an old school phone. If you want to text, Mike, remember you have to hit the button like three times to get a letter? Yeah. That's the kind of, <laughs> yeah. and I, I find it fascinating because they can still text, but there's just so much friction. So you have to be really motivated to send a text when you have right. to do it the old school way by hitting multiple buttons. Right. And I've also heard some young people say that the battery life is longer on the, on the flip phone, right? Yeah, I think a lot of people will remember that old Nokia brick phone, the 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 blue one from back in the day. That yeah. thing had like the longest battery life. You could drive a car over it and it wouldn't die. You know, it had over a week battery life. Whereas today, and people have this issue all the time of when their phone battery dies out, you know, the anxiety that comes with that. So, you know, I, I love to see this trend. I hope it's not just young people, Mike. I hope older mm -hmm. people now realize that maybe if they're if they're glued to their phone, that maybe you know, it's time to try something different, but the foldable market is going to get, uh, is going to increase. Uh, they're projecting it to be a $29 billion industry by 2025, but that's only about 3.6% of the total smartphone market uh, in 2026. So still half of the phone market right now is Apple iPhones and almost the other half is about Android users as well. So smartphones aren't going anywhere, but right. flip phones are definitely making a comeback and these dumb flip phones we should be more specific about. Right, right. And it was interesting to listen to that viral TikTok there where you get this young college student in the United States and this has been viewed millions of times saying that 
now that she and her friends had switched to these dumb phones, the old school flip phone, that it, it sounds like it just improved their lives. She said there's fewer people crying when they're yes. out because they're not glued to these phones and dealing with all the drama on it. They're just using it to communicate with their friends you know, me, me, and just more in the moment and reacting, interacting like more like hu on a human level. Do you think that's part of the appeal? Absolutely. I think it actually follows the statistics because between 2004 and 2019, the rate of teen depression nearly doubled. And a lot of people are attributing that to smartphones and the, the FOMO of them constantly checking on their phones. They might be on a vacation with their parents, but all their friends are sitting in a basement, you know, and they're just watching all this content and then they get depressed because they feel like they're yeah. missing out. So I think that's no wonder. And, and by having one of these dumb phones, they're more present. And like she said, they're not crying at the end of the night and her friend yeah. who doesn't use a phone at all is the most happy and, and having conversations with people like we used to do before smartphones came on the scene. Okay, are these easy to get these smart, these uh, flip phones, these old school dumb flip phones? Are they, if, people, if people are switching to them, I guess they're selling them, right? Yeah, they're, they're easier in the United States because they have them at the carrier level. Um, I have to go check with the local carriers here. I don't see them out. It's only like the Samsung Galaxy Flip is the one that's really out in Canada. But I think with this nostalgia marketing, you're going to see these companies look at this and say, you know what, we need to actually carry a dumb phone because this is a big issue with, with smartphone addiction these days. So I think even though it might not be available right now, in the next couple of years, you're going to see these dumb phones uh, come onto the market. They're cheaper, longer battery life. They're just more friction. So it'll keep right. you off your phone for sure. Would you say, last question for you, Andy, like when we think about the rise of the smartphone and how it's basically, it's changed our lives here, would you say that the smartphone has made life better or worse? Because I think for some people, especially if they end up working longer hours, they end up taking more calls, texts, working on their smartphone, that's typically a bad thing. I personally find the smartphone allows me to work more efficiently in the and then in the past so i would say that's a good thing but especially for younger people too overall has it been a good thing or a bad thing do you think it, it really depends on the individual level mike yeah. because you, we have to have a healthy relationship with our smartphones you know we don't want to become slaves to our phone what what really saddens me is like the phone is the last thing people check before they go to bed and it's the first thing they check when they get up in the morning and i think we have to be disciplined in how we use our phone, have dedicated times when we're going to say go on social media, but not just constantly open our phone. So the, those monitoring apps that can monitor your phone usage, I highly recommend people do that and try to gamify it. Try to stay off your phone and, and learn from these young people. They're, they're figuring it out so us older mm. people can figure it out as well that you know life is what you're doing when you're not looking at your smartphone. Love it, Andy. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.